Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, the 12th chapter of the letter to the Hebrews. This letter was written to those who were tempted to turn back, tempted to turn back from their former lives in Judaism to reject the Christ they had come to know and to go back to their former lives, their former religious ceremonies, their former religious observances, all these things they were tempted to turn back to. Hebrews 11 gives us a great encouraging chapter of continuing, of enduring, of walking forward in faith despite the trials we may endure. And Hebrews 12 begins with that key word, therefore, reminding us of all that has come previously. So read with me Hebrews 12, and we'll read the first three verses of the chapter. Hear God's word together. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Amen. Let us ask God now to bless our study of his word. The Lord, we confess that your word is that living and active sword. We confess that your word is that which instructs us and which guides us and which shapes us and which focuses and brings us to Christ our Savior. But Lord, as we confess that this is indeed a spiritual word, we confess that apart from your spirit, we cannot truly understand it. And so we pray that you would accompany your word by your spirit so that we might truly read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest these great truths. That they would not merely be words that we hear through our ears, but that they would be words which penetrate to our hearts and affect us as we move on from here. Lord, glorify yourself even as you sanctify your people, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. An ultramarathon must be the greatest test of endurance. Races which are more than 42 kilometers. Some of these races are 50 kilometers, perhaps 100 kilometers. Some are 100 miles or 160 kilometers. But in 1983, a very famous ultramarathon of great distance took place for the first time. This was the Sydney to Melbourne ultramarathon, 875 kilometers long. Think of running that far. What a test of endurance. And there's a very unlikely winner to that race. The man's name was Cliff Young, a 61-year-old potato farmer and shepherd. And his strategy was interesting. Unlike the other runners who took off faster than Cliff and who ran for about 18 hours a day and then slept for six, Cliff Young shuffled continuously for five days, 15 hours, and four minutes. 
continually enduring along those 800 plus kilometers. Cliff Young ran with endurance. And Hebrews 12 brings us to a similar kind of race. Hebrews 12 brings us, as it were, into an amphitheater at the starting line of a race to be run with endurance. And as we consider, again, what's come before in the setting of the book of Hebrews, these are people who are tempted to turn aside from running. These are people who are tempted to give up the race. And the author writes to them 16 great examples, not of perfect obedience in Hebrews 11, but of those who were testimonies and examples of God's faithfulness. Before bringing in verse 12 them to the great example of perseverance and endurance, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, is the same not true for us? We too are tempted to give up. We too are tempted to think that our sufferings have become too much. That whether the cares of this world or the sins which we constantly struggle with or the, the pressures of living for Christ in a world that hates Him, any one of these things can tempt us to, to give up. Any one of these things can tempt us to quit running. And yet in this passage we see that because Christ has finished the work of redemption, we can and we must run with endurance. Because Christ has finished the work of redemption, let us run with endurance. But the question must be asked of the text, how? How can we run with endurance this race that is set before us? And we'll see that answered in three ways. First, we must prepare. Second, we must focus. And third, we must remember. So look with me at verse 1. We ask the question, how can we run with endurance? First, prepare to run. Prepare to run. Paul begins verse 1 of chapter 12 by saying, therefore, this key word tying us back to Hebrews 11, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the great witnesses which we have seen earlier in chapter 11, the great cloud of witnesses that stretches back all the way from Abel through the Old Testament to the time of writing and beyond, this is the great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. So what's our first preparation for running? Simply this. Recognize that you are not the first runner. Recognize that you are not the first runner. It's not as though you are approaching the starting line saying to yourself, I'm the first person who has ever tried to run with endurance. That's simply not true. You are surrounded, as it were, by many thousands of people, even more than the saints we see mentioned from the Old Testament, but every faithful Christian who has gone before is a witness. And what's so, so marvelous and so wonderful is these are not witnesses of our running. It's not, as it were, that Moses and David are watching on from heaven with tick boxes on clipboards saying, oh, didn't quite do that so good. Mm give a C- minus on that score. That's not what they're witnessing. They are witnesses to God's faithfulness even in the midst of their sufferings. They are witnesses to what God did along and through their sufferings as they continued to live 
and endure. So this great cloud of witnesses bears witness to God in His faithfulness that He is worth enduring for, that He is worth suffering for. It's as if these people one by one are called up to the witness stand to say, was Christ in all His benefits, was Christ in all His glory worth suffering for? And to a man they say, yes and amen. It was worth it. So you are not alone. You are not alone, dear beloved, when you face the temptation to think that because you live in a city or a town or a country that opposes Christ in various ways, God has not abandoned you. In that time, remember Abram. Remember what he did. Remember that when he was in a foreign city, when he was in a foreign land, God was near to him and God was with him. When you're tempted to place your hope in this earthly city, remember that Abram testified to us that he longed for a city whose designer and builder was God himself. When you're tempted by the riches of this world, remember Moses, who for all the riches of Egypt counted them as worthless with the comparison of being counted among God's people. When you're tempted to compromise the gospel because that would be the easy thing to do, remember someone like Martin Luther, who though all the world was opposed to him, so it seemed, he took his stand and said, here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. When you're tempted by the great suffering in your life, when you're tempted to lose heart and give up because of a diagnosis or of a family struggle, Remember that faithful saint who may be known only to you, who suffered well. He or she too is part of that great cloud of witnesses that testify to God's faithfulness in endurance. That cloud of witnesses from able to the present testifying that this God is worth enduring for. So not only do we recognize that we are not the first to run, but second... In order to prepare to run well, we must deal with obstacles. We must deal with obstacles. The author says, since we are surrounded, reading on, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us lay aside every weight. We understand this image, don't we? The author is writing in a context that would have understood the, origin, the, the original Olympic Games where athletes would have stripped down from their togas into a far better, lighter running attire. And in the modern Olympics, we understand that too. Think of what people wear when they run a marathon or even when they are a sprinter. And you might be thinking they normally wear very lightweight, tight-fitting clothing. And you'd be partially right. But think back just a few minutes earlier to when they approached the starting line. What are they wearing? They're wearing... Heavy track suits, warm track suits. But before they begin, they lay aside those track suits. They don't run in those track suits. They strip down, as it were, so that they might run well. And this is what the author is calling us to do. To lay aside these weights or hindrances. And then also to lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares us or which clings so closely to us. So what's in mind or in view here with these weights or hindrances? I think simply put, it would be anything which is unnecessary 
and makes it harder to run. The author is purposefully vague here because when it comes to weights, it's going to be different for each person. What might be something in which you are able to glorify God in might be a weight for a different believer. But that's why I say it is something which is both unnecessary and makes it harder to run. There have been some in church history who have forgotten that first bit, the unnecessary part. But they have looked at things in their life which they determined made it harder to follow Christ. And even though they were what we would call necessary things, they have decided to lay them aside. You can think of a great number of people who left their families and their jobs to join monasteries, laying aside things that were necessary, but which they deemed made their life harder to follow Christ. These weights are not things which make your life harder to follow Christ only. For if your family struggles or work struggles make it hard to follow Christ, that may be part of the sufferings God has for you in your following of Christ. But these weights are things which are both unnecessary and make it harder to follow Christ. Picture this time, not a a runner stripping off an outer layer, but picture a person who's decided to run holding a bowling ball outstretched in their arms. That weight is going to get heavier and heavier the farther they run, and it's completely unnecessary to them completing the course. So once again, these weights are not things which are sinful in and of themselves, but which are that which makes our running more and more difficult. So consider for yourself what that may be. Consider for yourself whether that may be something which you once loved and then loved more and then which one day surpassed godly love and became an idol. Consider something which is good but which has taken the wrong place in your life. These would be weights. As I consider my own life, a weight in the past, just by way of example, would be the sports of baseball in particular. I remember I I was an okay baseball player, but I played on a very good team. And one summer, I think I missed probably 80% of the church services during that summer. Baseball was a sport where we would play four games on every single weekend. And church became very much a lower and lower priority. I loved baseball. The hot sun on my skin, the freshly mown grass. It's beautiful. I truly believe you can glorify God and play baseball. But when baseball began to crowd out other things which were commandments from God, this unnecessary thing was making it harder and harder to follow Christ. That's a weight in your life. Think about what that might be. But not only are we to lay aside these weights, we are also to lay aside the sin or sin which clings so closely. So on the one hand, we have weights which can be different in different people's lives, but we also have sin, those objective things which are contrary to God's law. And here I think, most especially, consider those sins which make it difficult to run. Consider those sins which affect our endurance. Within the context here, the sin that has to come to our minds would be the sin of unbelief or the sin of seeking glory in this life. For the author is writing to a community who is suffering, a community who is facing great persecution for their sin, for their faith. And so if someone here were to think the Christian life is a path of glory, the Christian life is to be easy and carefree and 
happy and healthy and wealthy and all these things, to think such things would be a great obstacle to running well. Similarly, if you were to begin to doubt Christ, the one that you were looking unto, the one that you were running toward, that would be something which made it very difficult, if not impossible, to run. The language here of the sin which clings so closely, or some translations say the ensnaring sin. I can't help but think of a a vine coming out of the ground as you're about to run, wrapping itself around your ankles, tripping you up before you even start. What is the sin in your life? The sin which causes you to take your eyes off of Jesus, which causes you to give up hope. Cast that sin aside and turn to Christ for victory over it. Lay that sin aside. But third, not only must we recognize that we aren't the first runner and deal with obstacles, the third thing we must do in our preparation is understand the race. Understand the race. The second part of verse 2 says, let us lay aside... And then the third part of verse 2 says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run with endurance. This idea of endurance occurs in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. Verse 1 says, let us run with endurance. Verse 2 says that Christ himself endured the cross. And verse 3 says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Think of how different it would be in your understanding of the race if you were confused about thinking you were running a 100-meter sprint rather than an ultramarathon. Picture with me that Usain Bolt, on the day before his last Olympic race, all of a sudden found himself getting lost and found himself walking out of the tunnel, not onto the track, but next to Elliot Kipchoge and the other marathoners. Imagine that he heard the clink of his spikes alongside the soft running shoes of the people beside him. Imagine if as the gun went off, he took off down the first 100 meters in less than 10 seconds, looking around him, arms outstretched in victory, and began to slow to a jog and then a walk, looked for the Jamaican flag only to be passed one by one by these marathoners running past him. It's silly when we think of that situation, but if we think that the Christian life is going to be a 100-meter sprint, we give it our all and burn ourselves out and then look up and say, there's still a long way to go. We can do that if we misunderstand the race. But also understand with me the race designer. It says that this race is set before us. It's not a race we design ourselves. This is a race designed for you by God. When you look at a 400-meter track, it's very easy to see the beginning, the middle, and the end of the race. But when we look out across our lives, when we consider a marathon or an ultramarathon, we may know the beginning where we're starting. We may know Christ at the end. But the middle looks pretty hazy and foggy, does it not? Take heart, Christian, that just as sure as Christ is at the finish, So sure is the middle to the mind of God. The middle is clear in the mind of God. As much as you may wonder 
and struggle with what lies ahead, Christ has set this race before you, and he knows it, and he will be with you in and through it. As you consider the difficulties you face, remember and take heart in the fact that your Father has set this course before you. He has not abandoned you. He will direct your paths. Not even a hair can fall from your head apart from the will of your Father in heaven. So as unsure as that middle of the race may be, know that you are a child of the race designer and you run with his plans in mind. So how can we run with endurance? We must prepare to run. Preparation is key. But second, how can we run with endurance? We must focus on Jesus. Verse 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This idea of looking is also translated in other versions as fixing or keeping or constantly looking at Christ. How can we run with endurance? Focus on Jesus. The idea here is of looking away from everything else and instead looking unto Jesus. That rather than looking at the various things on the side paths or looking at your own feet or looking at anything else, look unto Jesus. Focus on Jesus, the exemplar. Not only our example, but our founder and our forerunner. Our founder, our forerunner, our perfecter of the faith. Think of the way that Christ has gone ahead of us in the path of salvation. That Christ was the one who was the trailblazer unto the Holy of Holies. That's how the book of Hebrews speaks of him elsewhere. The one who was the forerunner into the very heavenly sanctuary. The first high priest who did not enter the earthly tabernacle, but instead went in and to the Holy of Holies in the heavenly city. Consider his suffering. That Jesus Christ was the one who suffered unto death. Not just as an example, but as a representative. Not just as the one that we could look to and say, see, Jesus suffered too, but the one who by his sufferings made it possible for us to suffer for him. He's the author and the perfecter. He's also the founder or the forerunner in the way that his sufferings gave way to glory. The whole chapter of Hebrews 11 reminds us of a people who suffered unto death, some of them, but who looked forward for things which they did not receive in their lifetime. But Jesus Christ, in his sufferings, not only died, but also raised himself from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. So consider Jesus the exemplar. Not only is he the one who went before us, but he is the object of our faith also. Second, focus on Jesus' endurance. Focus on Jesus' endurance. It says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. When you consider what this verse would mean, 
I think it's helpful to look at Hebrews 11 yet again. The, the context of this passage is so key to understanding the text. That Hebrews 11 records time after time people who were willing to suffer, willing to endure because of the hope of the promises that were to come. And so now the author takes us to Christ and grabs our hand, as it were, and leads us unto him and says, look now at Christ, the one who is the exemplar par excellence of all these things. The one who was willing to suffer on the cross because of the joy that lay afterward. It's not as though Christ blocked out the view of the cross. It wasn't as though he didn't consider the cross, but even on the cross he could see the joy that was set before him. The joy of glory to come. The joy in the salvation of his people. The joy in returning to the Father. The joy set before him. All of these things, my dear friends, Christ considered while he endured the cross. Finally, consider Jesus' exaltation. Consider Jesus' exaltation. The fact that he now is seated, it says, at the right hand of the throne of God. That Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning now. Have you ever thought about how good that is for you that that is true? That you have a high priest who is ruling and reigning as king of the universe. That you have a high priest who intercedes in the heavenly sanctuary for you. That you have an advocate with the Father, namely Jesus Christ the righteous. That your king is not dead in the grave, but is resurrected, ascended, and currently sitting on the throne of the universe. He's not only ruling and reigning externally, but he is ruling and reigning in the hearts of all those who know him. Guiding us into truth. Showing us his way. This is our exalted king. So how can we run with endurance? We must focus on Jesus. When I was eight years old, my family and I moved to a new farm. We had previously lived on a family farm that my grandparents had owned, but when I was eight years old, we moved to our own farm. And that farm was quite newly built, and so there were very few buildings, no trees, no lawn to speak of. And so as far as the eye could see, in one direction you had a farmhouse, a dirt patch that would one day become lawn, a thin gravel driveway, and the chicken barn. And there was nothing in between. And I had the great privilege of, at that time, owning a very small 80cc quad bike. It was great fun to have nothing in your way and have free reign over all of that space. But one day when I was riding, I was riding from quite a far distance away and began to see the barn coming closer and closer. And what I did was that I fixed my eyes on the barn. I focused on the eyes with all, focused on the barn with all my attention. And do you know what happened? I hit the barn. With nothing else to distract me, with everywhere else to go, turning right, turning left, stopping, all of those things would have been an option to me. But because my eyes were fixed on the barn, do you know what happened? I hit the barn. It's really, really hard to turn a different direction than where you're looking. 
That is, in a positive sense, what is in view here. That as we focus on Jesus, where will we go? We will run to Jesus. When you are walking or running or cycling and you look down at your feet, you look at yourself, what happens? You stumble and trip and fall. When you look to Christ, you will run to him. Robert Murray McShane once wrote that every time I look to myself, I make sure and look ten times to Christ. You could potentially even add a zero to that, right? When we get discouraged and become overly introspective, that can be such a great hindrance even in our endurance and running. Fix your eyes, focus your eyes upon Jesus. I think there's a great temptation amongst Christians who desire to grow deeper in the faith, to think that growing deeper or studying things of, of deep theology means studying things that are beyond Christ, his person, and his work. That if you are to really get to the deep things, to move past the elementary things, you move on from Christ. That all of a sudden you begin studying all these other things and forsake what you perceive to be the elementary ABCs. Friends, don't be persuaded by that untruth, by that lie. Think of what Paul said to the Corinthian church, that he desired to know nothing among them except what? Christ and him crucified, right? Any theology, any spiritual study must be conducted with a view that this is related to Christ, his person, and his work. The minute you start to think, I've moved on from those elementary things, I've moved past them into something more spiritual, deeper knowledge, whatever it might be, you are actually looking away to the side rather than focusing on Christ. So how can we run with endurance? First, prepare to run. Second, focus on Jesus. And third, verse 3, remember your hope. Remember your hope. Verse 3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Remember your hope. What are we to remember? We're to remember that Christ endured. Again, as you read this passage, you cannot help but be struck by how often that theme of endurance comes like time and time again. And you may think to yourself, how is this different, Josh? How is this different than verse 2, looking unto Jesus? What does consider him add? And it adds this. That the first part, which says looking, fixing, focusing on Jesus, has in view the idea of looking away from something on your right or something on your left and turning your eyes to Christ. But here, the idea of considering, or I've entitled it remembering, is this deep, focused, meditated, intent study of Christ. Really pondering his person and his work. Gazing upon his face, as it were. So what are we to consider? What are we to deeply remember? It says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. Chrysostom, an early church father and great preacher, said, when we consider his endurance, we're considering all the abuses that Christ endured throughout his passion. 
Think of all the things that Christ endured. Even if we limit it to maybe his last 24 hours before he died. Consider what it would be like to be betrayed unto death by a close friend. Consider what it would have been like to suffer a mock trial. An unjust trial. Consider what it would have been like to be beaten and mocked and spat at by Roman soldiers. Consider, of course, the horror of hanging on a cross and dying the death we deserved. Consider Christ who suffered such hostility against himself by sinners. Dear brother and sister, whatever you're suffering, Christ knows them not just theoretically, but experientially. What a joy it is to read elsewhere in Hebrews in chapter 4 that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. We do not serve a distant and removed an ethereal high priest, we serve a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. So why, why should we consider? Why should we focus our attention and remember this suffering? The verse gives us the answer. It says, so that we may not grow weary. The language used here is used elsewhere outside the New Testament of runners who collapse who've given it everything they've got and who just drop down to their knees. And what the verse seems to be saying is, is that you are not done running yet. If you still have breath in your lungs, you are still running. If you still have movement in your feet, you are still running. So consider Christ so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. Christ's sufferings have ceased. Ours have not yet, though. But we've said, remember your hope. Remember the hope that just as Christ's sufferings have ceased, so too will our suffering cease one day. There will come a day when there is no more suffering to be had. There will come a day where there is no more trial to endure or temptation to fight. That is the hope that we look to. That just as Christ's sufferings ended, and he was raised from the dead and took his seat at the right hand of God the Father, so too do we look forward to the ceasing of our sufferings. A similar passage which highlights these truths is Romans chapter 8, verse 18, which says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Your sufferings, dear believer, will cease. They will one day run their course, even as you finish your race. So go to him in your sufferings. Draw near to him. Treasure the thought that no one, not even yourself, knows your sufferings as Christ knows them. Go to him and find his deep, perfect love for you there. And friend, if you do not know this Christ, if you have not looked to him in faith, if you have not considered his greatness, his love, his mercy, his tenderness, look to him now even for the first time. 
What's one of the ways the Bible describes faith is looking to Jesus. That even as the Old Testament Israelites looked to that bronze serpent raised in the desert, so too Jesus said to Nicodemus, look to the Son of Man on the cross and find perfect salvation there. Christ's work of redemption is complete. Having suffered, he now reigns in glory. And having seen his person and work, let us run with endurance. Let us prepare well. Let us focus on him. Let us remember our hope. For thousands of years, scholars have wondered how Alexander the Great's soldiers endured. These men marched on foot from Greece to Egypt, from Egypt to India. Thousands of kilometers trekked over mountains, over rivers, through valleys. How could they endure such a great distance? One classicist said this, How did Alexander keep the love of his soldiers even in the midst of their exasperation? How did he keep their love? And what he said was that Alexander was the first one up the ladder. He was the one who headed the assaults. He was the one who was wounded most. He was the one who looked for water when they were in the desert and marched with his soldiers rather than rode on a steed. How did they endure? They served a general who led by example and suffered for their sake. Friends, how much greater is Christ than Alexander? When Alexander died, his kingdom, his vast empire splintered almost immediately. When Christ died, he defeated sin, death, and Satan and inaugurated his kingdom. When Alexander suffered at the hands of his enemies, there was nothing he could do. But friends, when Jesus Christ suffered, he said he was laying down his life, but no one could take it from him. Alexander's soldiers were able to endure because their general led by example and suffered for them. Friends, the maker of the universe endured the hostility of sinners willingly so that he might save us. Let us run to him. Let us run with endurance. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we can come now and hear from your word about the greatness of our Savior, Jesus. Thank you that we can hear of one who suffered willingly, who endured to the end, who was raised in glory, and who intercedes now for us. Lord, we are so weak. We are so weary. We struggle to endure so greatly. Give us comfort, give us strength, fix and focus our eyes upon you. Enable us, Lord, to keep going, each and every one of us, running unto Jesus, we pray. It's in his name we ask all these things. Amen.